Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here in the studio with uh, Dr. Carrie Keene, our physicist here at Wisconsin Lutheran College. Wade is amped on wait, wait. caffeine. Wait, wait, Dr. Carrie Keene. Yeah. And who? I'm not going to call you doctor when you just, first of all, you put tea in a styrofoam cup and then you just drop the bag onto your sweatpants. I'm not calling <laughs> I'm you doctor. I'm shorts, that's what I'm Okay. <laughs> on your By the way, so I got tea because I've been a... Uh, Highly caffeinated today, so I asked a um, guest of the show. She's been on twice, I think. Professor Sheena Finnegan. Mm-hmm. I'll use a title for her because I respect her. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked her for some tea, and then I come down with my tea, and he said, "Mike says, what are you drinking?'" I said, "Tea," because I have class. He said, "Wait, we're supposed to be recording. You have class." Yeah, and then, this is. But you meant that like, wasn't even an intentional joke. You just couldn't imagine right, that, that I have, have class. class. Right. Yeah, that hurt my feelings. And then you just dropped the tea bag on your on yourself. It's fully. Teed okay. or whatever you call it, matriculated. Okay, I will. I will. I will use the respectful titles to people I respect. So we're here with <laughs> Dr. Kerry Keen and Wade, um, and we're here to talk about apologetics and a project specifically that Kerry and I are doing, which is a summer apologetics program. But we'll get into that. We are going to have, I think, a fairly fun. Um, uh, what's what do we call it? Free for all. Free for all coming up soon. So See, please. we've been debating. Just background for our listeners, we've been debating if we should always do the free for all. Sometimes not. Should do I the list free some of these, <laughs> and then people can say we really want? No, you to No, because do that. I think there's some of them that are going to offend people. But so, even, I, even if I just list them, I guess you can list some okay. of. You, but know that we're not going to necessarily do these. And there's one explicitly that Ben said we can't do. Well, I won't mention that one. Okay. The, so you can, listeners can email what they would want us to do for free for all. Or you can let us know just don't ever do a free for all. But I will remind yeah, some people are like, oh, they don't get on topic till twenty minutes in. There's timestamps in right, the show notes, so all you gotta do is scroll down. Yep. Okay. Most romantic means of transportation. We had, I have a note here that Vespa would probably be one that we would we'd have to argue over. Like hot no, air we balloon. both thought... Hot air balloon hot would be air, We good. both thought Vespa, I thought. Yeah, I think so we, we thought Vespa. So we had to say Vespa. we couldn't both say Vespa. Right, that's what I'm saying. I have a note there that Vespa... Vespa would be a, a good one. It anyway. is. Um, corporations or government, which do you fear more? Which I, I wanted to do I today nixed, with Dr. I nixed Keen, that. But. I nixed that today. What government action... Oh, we didn't do this one. What government action would get you to rebel or leave? Carrie, would you answer me taxation? Carrie would be like... Exist <laughs> for for our listeners. Carrie is maybe a little bit on the libertarian Carrie, side. Carrie and Peter. Say, so imagine what side Peter would take on stuff. Oh. That's um, state. We had you Carrie. Least... You had a car accident next to your house recently, where someone drove mm-hmm. into the house next to him. Yeah. And so I was joking with Peter. I asked if Carrie called Peter over as like his private police force to uh, <laughs> to come take care. That was loud. There yeah, were some explosion. pictures. There were some pictures going around of Peter. Dressed as a police officer. Too. Yeah, Ben photoshopped them there. Look <laughs> fearsome. Um, we we decided not to do this one too because Carrie's from Ohio, uh, the state uh, we would least want to live in because Wade and I both would have picked on. And Ohio. what happens this week, Mike? That makes it extra. Michigan plays Ohio yeah, State. Hostility. Yeah, I guess so. What's yeah. your prediction? Um, I don't think I'm going to be happy. Well, That's my I think, prediction. I think you got a shot. I'm feeling. I'm, well, as I've fine. given up on my team. Yeah. I think Michigan has a shot. We'll see. I appreciate your positive attitudes. Um, which age of history would you least or most like to live in? Your last meal. Um, a nuclear bomb is coming, and you have the ability to send it off course, but you can't send it into the ocean. 
Greenland or Antarctica. It has been an inhabited country. Yep. Yeah. So um, that would be an easy one. And yeah. I can say for sure for us at Let the Bird Fly, it would not be Albania or Latvia. That's right. We're very big there. One disease um, that we could not vaccinate for, so you had to choose uh, like one we already have a vaccination right. for and you have to take it away. That's a tough one. Hmm. Um, I don't think it's tough at all. I already know my answer. Okay. So those are ones that are possibilities. Say the other we one just, and then just say the one we won't do because Ben says the we worst, can't do it. The worst drug to legalize. Like if you, if you, what would be the worst one you're like, no, maybe, maybe you're pro legalization and you're totally like a, like it's personal choice, but there's one you have to legalize. Like what would be the worst? If I were one a Marxist, do you know what I would answer that? Hmm. Religion. Well, it's an opiate. Yeah. For the masses. Is that the one we weren't supposed to say, or is there another one? <laughs> yeah, that's what we're not supposed to <laughs> say, because Ben says we can't talk about legalizing drugs. Okay, so, um, but today we're going to do something a little bit safer. We're going to say the favorite kind of course that you took that you did not major or minor in. So, Like high um, school, undergrad high that school you were interested or, in. Or undergrad that you were interested yeah. in the most. Okay, so that's not a really great beginning to our show, but that's okay. I think I'm it's gonna, excellent. I'm going to read the disclaimer, and then we're going to come back. If, I wonder if Eric still listens. That I bet Eric would not have liked that opening. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers, to be honest, much of the time. It probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to our free-for-all, where we talk about, I believe Peter says, the pressing issues of our day. And after much discussion, and Mike saying no to at least a few of our possible choices, um, we settled on, uh, and by the way, if you don't want to listen to the free-for-all, look at the timestamp, skip ahead, and we'll get to our main topic. But uh, we settled on, like, class you liked in high school or undergrad, maybe your gen ed for undergrad, um, that you that you liked the best, and then it wasn't something you pursued as a major or a minor or in grad school. Um, we said we could pick gym class. I think we should rule out gym class. I wouldn't pick it, gym class. I wouldn't so. pick it either. Okay, because I was maybe going to pick gym class. Um, so I think <laughs> I shouldn't pick gym class. And uh, That's because you majored in gym, right? Yeah, and maybe it's something <laughs> you still enjoy reading about today. It's just not your primary or secondary field or whatever. I'm going to go last. Okay. Do you want me to go first? I was looking at you, yeah. Okay. For the, for our listeners, I'm making eye contact directly at Mike. When he makes eye contact. I, I think look, it'd be rude I to make our down. guests go first. I look down because it's... It's uncomfortable? It's uncomfortable and it's weird. Um, so I the only class that I was good at in school was history. For some reason, I, I was able to manage that and I enjoyed it. So I think anything in history... I don't think you should be able to pick history because you teach church history here. I do, but i not a historian and never really took any... Well, that's you know. hurting the college right so, now. You shouldn't say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so I was going to get there. Um, that maybe that's, you know, as a theologian, you're also in, grounded in history and you're taking church history classes. So that's kind of not fair. Um, I actually 
very much liked anything that had to do with uh, the law. So we didn't have a whole lot. But As opposed to gospel or like civil law? Civil law. Okay. So like if I, had, if I was smart enough, I think I would have tried to be a lawyer. I wouldn't have made it. Um, There's a lot of people who get to be lawyers. That's yeah, a, but but it you take, can like do it online now. I think right, but it no offense take, to our online. Lawyers. It would have taken in in my undergrad period a lot of dedication and work, and I mean, I guess I had that because I did make it through college and all those languages. You but did I was there? Kind of take those logic I mean? questions on the LSAT, which are like Mary and Peter both like to ride bikes more than John and Eric, yeah. and Eric has two bikes and you know all this. But I just don't I would know. say not Peter would be because the answer because Peter I had, doesn't ever show up for anything. Yeah, I had. I mean, there was a desire. I mean, what drove me was like you should like you should be a pastor. This is good. This is what you want to do. Whatever. And the motivation to be a lawyer, I think, would have been interesting, but not enough for me to get off my can and do something. What kind of lawyer would you have been? Like tax law? Oh, no. I would have been like, um, I would would have been criminal law, I think. Okay. Now, there's one side of this that I don't like. So and I'm I would be you, on the defense. I okay, would be. I like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't, don't think I would have been. I don't think I'm I not can. against prosecutors. It's a necessary right. thing. I just don't get, to me, being a prosecutor is kind of like being parking enforcement. Like you're okay. just. Your job is to get people in trouble. And I don't think that I could... You know who is a prosecutor, Mike? The devil. Yeah. I don't think I could put <laughs> on my conscience, like, what if I'm wrong? You like, knew that right away. I'm impressed. Yeah. Well, I am a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> I have read the Bible. Just like a condescending... Like, I can't even get on a jury, you know, because... I got on a jury yeah. once. I was on a jury just the last couple of years. I've been ago. wanting to because I want to do jury nullification. Oh, my goodness. Else. Yeah. So, but what? <laughs> here's why. I would be a defense attorney not there because if I screw up on the defense attorney. Some guy goes to jail for life? No. But if I, I'm defending him and so if I'm wrong, um, the guy goes free instead of going to jail. You know what I mean? Like, right. But if you do a bad job, well, he, bad he or she goes that's to a, prison that, for that's life. A different situa- that's a different topic. What I'm saying is. I'm supposed to throw somebody into prison, but as a prosecutor, and if I'm wrong, that's really crappy. But if I'm a defense attorney and I, I'm supposed to defend this person, and if I'm wrong, someone goes free instead of being into prison. I'd rather be on that side of the air. What if you would have been like the, the defense side? attorney for Hitler when he was at the Longsburg prison? <sighs> And then you defended him, and he gets out and starts. When you was know, he? Basically, they have the Nazi takeover. I wouldn't. Was have done after that. the the beer hall push, he was. That's mm-hmm. where he was in prison. I think that's it was. Right, you're right. You're right. You're right. I was thinking like. And then he wrote Mein Kampf. I'm thinking post World War Two. Um, Would you have defended Hitler? Would you have felt it to be a vocational one's, obligation? That one's hard. I think that, but I do. I do kind of appreciate like, the adversarial system. <laughs> that's a cap out. I think you would have, no one knew Hitler was going to be Hitler at that point. Oh, I would have done it because you know me. If someone tells me to do something, just do it. Right. I, I think really that's the, kind of the doubt, danger of a, like really a, a kind, totalitarian leader, though, is I know. no one expects them right. to be that. I really know? kind of doubt that I would have been chosen to do anything more than, you know, pro bono work for <laughs> some <laughs> low level drug dealer, though. <laughs> I don't know that I would have had the talent to that. I don't think it'll be an issue, Wade. All right, I'm done. <laughs> better call Mike. Yes, yeah. better call Mike. What do you uh, got, Gary? What, what, would, what would your, your oh, gig be? Well, I, I don't know. I, my favorite courses, besides physics courses, were art, actually. So in high school, I took a lot of art classes. And then when I went to college, I 
took a painting class and basically I, f I figured out how to fulfill as many general education requirements as possible with things related to art. So I took like architecture history for my history courses and <laughs> art history for my history courses. Mm -hmm. And, and they were nice because, you know, you go to this big, you know, theater basically and the professor gets up there and you watch a slideshow of, you know, Kandinsky and all these cool mm -hmm. pictures. And then you just, you know, sit back and draw the pictures and they tell you about the artists and how they, you know, mm -hmm. what their life mm -hmm. was. And so, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, art history was my favorite class at MLC besides all the ones that had to do with the Bible. Oh, yeah. You liked all the Bible ones? Mm -hmm. I liked all of them. They were all tied for first. And then it was, <laughs> and then it was art history. I didn't yeah. like all the Bible ones. Well, that's 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 on some you. of the Bible ones that's were on like you. beginning Hebrew and Greek, and they that's were hard. A, that's on you. Oh, I mean, once I'm in the Bible, that's top notch. But isn't I'm happy. part of appreciating the Bible tentatio, being at odds with the scriptures and wrestling with them? I mean, if you if you start at that level, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know which course that I wish I had taken that I didn't take. That was at when I was in college. There was this the most popular course was the wine tasting course. <laughs> really? Yeah. So there were like... It was not a dry campus then, huh? <laughs> no. So it was neat because you basically, most courses you had to buy a textbook for, but this you had to buy basically a communion set, like a little, you know, couple classes. <laughs> and you'd go to class and then the professor would stand up there and talk about, you know, this this particular year at this vintage was mm -hmm. like, and you'd sit there and they would pour wine and you'd sip the wine as they're talking about. There must have been an extra fee for that class. I am, I don't know. Maybe I, mean, kind of I just it never fit into my schedule, and I thought yeah. that would be a great class. Well, you, did you have to be like a senior or something to make? Yeah, sure? I think you had to be a senior. But and, and the class was only offered like eight in the morning, or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was the most popular class when I was. Um, yeah, I'm sure it was. We should do that here at WLC. I don't think that's going to fly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, wait. I would say I took four years of Spanish, and I wish I would have stuck with Spanish. Um, I would say it's the language that uh, I wish the most. I would have worked at until fluency and stuck with, especially I think it'd be very useful in a lot of ways today. So uh, I would have gone with Spanish. I, I was not bad at it through four years, but you know what ruins your Spanish? Is German and Greek and Latin and Hebrew, which, hmm. well, Latin, not Latin, Latin but the rest just throw Spanish right out the window. Yeah, It's hard. I, I tried to take Now, Spanish. like if I go to El Rey and I'm talking Spanish, I throw in German words. I'm sure I feel, I sound very threatening. <laughs> I, I don't know that the, you look threatening though no but i mean I'm, i can only assume that it throws him for a loop yeah. like what's up with this dude yeah like he's crazy maybe yeah like does he have a gun i don't think they think i don't look like i have a gun yeah, they would probably think i'm a homeless guy and i'm on something you kind of look like this guy that you're making oh describe that picture ricky yeah i'm not gonna say where it's from because someone will get offended you I'm look, all about not offending people. I know, but you look, I, I, you're not going to be offended. He's got a I, West Ellis tuxedo on, yeah, it's a right. track suit. I'm not going to, I don't want to offend you. No, and no offense to West Ellis, by the way, I right. respect I mean, you could. Remember when you're, we won't put your brother on the spot, but he's got that, that Raiders track suit. Yeah, and he was sure. telling tell me about when he went to the store and he got all kinds of compliments. Yeah. Um, I would I would say that the way you dress, uh, please don't be offended, because I, I, I know. I the, know. the needle's already going a little, I'm yeah. half triggered. That you would fit in. I don't feel safe right you now. You would fit in at a Florida panhandle, um, you know, 
trailer park where people have carry guns in their sweatpants. So I don't I'm think just saying, guns and sweatpants is a oh, smart sure. move. Well, you I just got the elastic. I, I, I agree I that it's have, not smart. Have a, but a tight. I'm just saying waist. you could be threatening. You yeah. could appear threatening. You okay. know what I've never done? Hmm. I've never held a handgun. Have you held a handgun? I have not. Carry a few. Oh yeah. I I just have a shotgun that I actually don't know where it's at now. <laughs> when we moved, I think I gave it to my in-laws to hold on to. You, you should. Do you want? And I've only shot that once with uh with Matt Schultz if he's listening. Do you want to? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I don't want to. I don't know. You wouldn't you shoot a gun just to shoot a gun? You can I've shot a gun once, and that was What enough. did you shoot, shotgun? Uh, a BB gun doesn't count. It was a rifle. What did you shoot at? Or don't a tell target. us if it can mean jail time. A target. Like a paper target? No. You can, should come I with, think. Come with Aaron and I sometime. Go to the shooter shop. Dr. Palmer Aaron? Oh, yeah. He shoots guns? <laughs> yeah. That, I would go just to watch Aaron shoot guns. I feel I feel a bit very, da- very um, in danger right now. All right. I should feel safer. <clears throat> yeah. That's... Does Peter shoot guns with you guys? Peter seems like he'd shoot guns. He couldn't come last time he went. <laughs> <laughs> he was busy. Okay, we're going to come back for a bit. Though. All right. So that brings us to our main topic, where we will be talking about apologetics with uh, Dr. Michael Berg and Dr. Kerry Keene. And uh, thanks, Wade. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, and so I thought uh, maybe we could start off briefly, since you guys are doing this thing. Um, we advertised a few times last year the um, I don't know if you call it a course or a set of seminars that you guys were doing at WLC on apologetics. Um, <clears throat> But maybe if we could talk about what that is kind of becoming and morphing into, I know a number of people who took it who spoke very highly of it. I know there's been some changes to it. Um, but maybe before you get into that, how you guys got to doing this together, I know you have some similar experiences or backgrounds with apologetics or how you came to an interest in apologetics and then that how, how that became a thing you are doing now. Sure. So maybe I'll just say briefly what we're doing and then I think it is kind of interesting that we have similar stories, similar people mm-hmm. that, that that's why I asked. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we can go into that. So we teach a one week, um, we called it practical apologetics. So one week intensive course, uh, five mornings and one afternoon, um, where we, uh, tag team teach, uh, basically the basics of apologetics. So I'll take resurrection apologetics, the textual evidence, um, did some of the philosophical stuff, uh, problem, problem of evil, which I think really for a Lutheran is really about theology of the cross. Um, and you took more of the scientific and the heavy burden of the philosophical apologetics. And, mm-hmm. and it was really fun. We had, uh, we capped it, um, and then let more people in. I think we had 18 students and so we turned people away. So we consider it a success. Mm-hmm. And we had people in their 60s, and we had even a couple, we had three high school students who were mm-hmm. obviously uh, motivated high school students, but most of them were campus pastors who uh, work at a high school. 
or just our, our pastors in a parish. And so uh, uh, a look into apologetics in one week, and, and it was so successful, we're going to add a second week where we bring in a speaker, but we can talk about that in a little bit. So let's talk about, uh, Carrie, why don't you just tell us about uh, your, your travel into apologetics, how you discovered that, and who influenced you. Yeah, so probably my interest in apologetics uh, came from when I was a graduate student in Santa Barbara, where I was doing my graduate work in physics. Um, and I went to a congregation, um, Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Santa Barbara, and that's where Craig Parton uh, was. And he um, he's a lawyer, probably many people who listen to this show might know him, but um, he taught an apologetics course uh, as part of the Bible class at our church. And I was just floored at how, how articulate and clear he was. And uh, m the kind of resources that he had access to that he was presenting to us that was just kind of opened up that world to mm -hmm. me. Uh, and then there were, you know, the dinner parties at his house where different um, apologists came and just the debates and things. I found it to be a fascinating environment and kind of turned me on to the whole topic of apologetics. Um, not just because it's kind of fun to debate this sort of thing, but because what you're debating is actually a really important topic, mm -hmm. uh, the, the reliability of Christianity. And um, it's a way that you can make contact with the unbelievers and say, you know, um, you're interested in science? Well, I am too. And mm -hmm. let's talk about science. And, you know, is this, there's sort of this, there's this notion that people have that there are some scientists back in like, you know, the 1800s who disproved God or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and on further examination, it, that's just not true. Right. <laughs> you know, so, so that's the, that's sort of how my interest in apologetics started, and then since then, I've you know gotten to uh, gotten more into it. And maybe something um, I should have asked at the beginning, and I forgot, um, Doctor. Can you've been on this show before to talk about physics a bit? But maybe if just briefly, you could explain your own background, your field, and what you do here. Um, yeah. To kind of give a sense for what each of you is bringing to this. And, and, and why physics is, I mean... You just took away what he's... A physicist <laughs> right. and apologetics would yep. be... Now yeah. they know he's a physicist. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, I've taught physics here at the college since 2001, so almost you know, 19 years now. Um, and when I, when I started teaching it, I guess I was teaching it the way that I was taught, which is in some ways very good, but also very heavily reliant on sort of standard textbooks where you, um, you know, you're presented with the formula, you memorize the formula, you learn how to plug numbers into the formula, and then you learn some technical applications for medical diagnostics or how to build a better iPhone or whatever. Um, and I thought this is going to get taxing to teach courses like this for the next, you know, 19, 20 years. And so I, I started looking more into the historical sources of the scientific ideas. And now I teach most of my um, lower level courses where we read selections from Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and so on. Uh, and then uh, what's nice about that is they're not simply interested in the formulas, but they're interested in the assumptions, and they make very explicit the kind of contact that their scientific theories are making with a broader worldview. Um, and that's I find fascinating uh, and very thought-provoking. And so I try to bring that into my courses, because it's important to have technical mastery of physics, but also to put it into some kind of context and you really only have to ask two, three, four, why sorts of questions before you're bumping up against philosophical or theological mm -hmm. kind of problems. Mm -hmm. so. And I, I think, um, too, you know, with, with what you're describing, you can correct me if I'm wrong, too, but, Carrie, I know you have a very keen interest in the, the liberal arts and the humanities as a whole. You are involved in the honors program as mm -hmm. it existed here at the college. 
um, liberal arts reading group. Um, how would you say, and because I think the textbooks you put together are very interesting in their approach as well, how would you say that, we talked about this a little bit when you were on before, but just to help the listeners, uh, if people are wondering how the, where this crossover comes from, how would you say physics, um, as opposed to or like the other, what we might call hard sciences, um, and maybe as opposed to, not, I, I failed out of science, um, last one I passed was botany, and I... That's a science. I'd done landscaping, yeah, and so I <laughs> I was fortunate to get through that. But how would you say um, that is maybe rooted in a a broader approach to, you know, looking at the historical mm-hmm. text, um, yeah. uh, how, how physics is kind of a in-between a lot of these different fields? Well, I th- you know, physics, the science generally arose out of what had been called natural philosophy, right? So it kind of has its roots in philosophy and the philosophy of nature. How do we understand nature, creation, um, and so I guess a lot of the founders of what we would call modern physics um, came more out of this sort of perspective where they were trying to fit it into a larger worldview. Um, and that's really apparent when you read these, you know, James Clerk Maxwell or when you read Newton. Or, um, but it's not, it's not apparent when you read modern scientific papers and journals. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. but No, no I think you are. I think it... Um... <laughs> What's interesting to me in having listened to you guys and especially Mike describe what you're doing before is that a lot of, um, there's a lot of crossover in what's happening, for instance, especially in the 16th century mm-hmm. in fields and developments that will feed into physics and mm-hmm. people who are doing the what, what we would call natural philosophy right. and people as well who are very interested in theology. Um, right. And, can, and I, can I give you an example? Like, yeah. uh, maybe this is what, what you're looking for. So something that came up in class today where there's a really neat overlap between physics and theology um, is that, so we're talking about the theory of light, like what light is and whether electric and magnetic fields really exist or not. So you need to take two magnets and the magnets attract each other, right? And so there's this debate in the 1800s um, about when one magnet pulls on another magnet, um, is that what they called action at a distance or an immediate action? So this magnet just pulls on this magnet with nothing connecting them at all. Those are the people who've argued that, people like Coulomb, um, they said that action, that things act on other things where they are not, like across empty space. Then you have Faraday and Maxwell who were proponents of what's called mediated action. So this magnet calls into existence a magnetic field that fills the space between them, and then that magnetic field pulls on this magnet. Okay. Hey, real quick. Yep. Which one do you think it is, Mike? The latter. Do you, wait, do okay. you know the answer to this for sure? Uh, can I guess the first one then? Okay, yeah. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's interesting because some of the people who were doing this also had theological commitments, and there's an overlap with... You know, when God creates faith in someone, is it immediate? That is, God creates faith in their heart apart from any means. Oh, I want to change my answer then. <laughs> okay. Or, or does God use means to carry out his task? So, you know, yeah, water and baptism yeah. or, you know, the body and blood you know, under bread and wine, right? So you see these interesting argument styles dealing with whether or not it's possible for things to act where they are not in a physical context, but there's also these debates going on in a theological context. How does God create faith in someone's heart? Does he do it through a medium of word and sacrament, or can he do it immediately? So yeah. there's, it's really interesting when you see, and these scientists are not ignorant of these sorts of things. You know, Maxwell was a very 
well-read theologically, and Faraday was too. I think Faraday was a sandemanian. I think that's so. Where's Faraday from? Faraday, I think, oh, Scotland, somewhere in England. Okay, so I just want right. to. This is not Gerhard Faraday, the theologian who no, some people get very worked Michael, up about. This no, is this is Michael Faraday. Okay, He's good. a sandemanian, I think. Is that did I say that right? It's sort of a a very strict sect. That could be. Break I just want to make sure that people don't accuse us of doing antinomian <laughs> physics. So. Um, but anyway, so it's just an interesting. And, but place that is what I was interested in. That yeah, that this is. I mean these. That, that those kind of debates are, are kind of fascinating to mm-hmm. me. Um, and I think it makes sense what you both are bringing to the Yeah, equation. and so I think when we look at apologetics, it's not so much of let's win an argument here, but there's a wider, robust worldview that is Christianity. This is, this is very much a liberal arts, reformational-type approach to, to apologetics. And we, we've noticed in just our discussions, and, uh, you know, and, and Wade, I mentioned this too, something to put on your radar, that... Uh, there's there's a parallel be in the uh, 16th century with those who want to throw out Aristotle from theology with those who want to throw out Aristotle from the academy altogether in science and and because Aristotle made some mistakes I mean for crying out loud he was you know he didn't have the same uh, you know um, the, the same data that they had mm-hmm. of course in the whatever and and obviously, you should in certain circumstances. But when you throw out the whole thing, the baby with the bathwater, mm-hmm. you do miss quite a bit. And we've seen that. Um, we've seen that parallel track almost. I mean, I, we should really do some more research on it. But I mean, like decade to decade, I bet we could see that these are our parallel tracks. And I think what your example, and then and then what we just talked about right now, is that there is a philosophy to everything. There's an overarching uh, uh, movements that happen within the academy and within society. And we're not just these independent things working in silos, but we're connected in a much deeper way than, than we realize. And, and you know, we theologians would say uh, to uh, you know, evolutionary biologists that this is also, Darwin, Darwin worked at a specific time and place there was something going on there. There was more than just that this was, there, there was a theological conviction or there was a philosophical conviction. And so can we navigate that? And so what I really appreciate about Kerry when he, when he taught uh, this, this course in the summer, it was not scientific ap- apologetics, you know, is the, you know, let's get the dimensions of the arc right. Right. <laughs> but I- it was how do you navigate a world which seems to say to us either you're you believe in science or you believe in some kind of voodoo myth mm-hmm. whatever that may be you want to call it christianity or you want to call it whatever but and how do you and then the history to see that's not really the case it's not really even the case for most scientists today right and so it's been i think it's really helpful for the theologian especially to come and listen to Carrie for for half a week. Well, uh, along those lines, I guess um, another question that comes to mind is, uh, Carrie, you mentioned these people in the magnet debate um, are, uh, they're they're coming in with with other concerns as well. And and something that we talked about, um, just the two of us when you popped in the other day, is there's many now who would say, well, science is objective, unlike so many other things. And I think even that title, The Hard Sciences, right? This is where we step back and we're just about objective things. Um, could you trace maybe a little bit for our listeners how that comes to be 
And maybe if that is the case for many who just take that for granted that you step in the lab and now all of a sudden you are just this blank slate impartial observer um, in a way that that, you know, someone would say you aren't in the humanities or or some other field. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple ways that we could go with this, but, um, you know, whenever there's this notion, I think what you're getting at is there's this notion that um, when you're collecting data and you get the data that your science is strictly based on data, just the fact kind of thing. But, but the fact is that when you're collecting data, not only are you making choices about what to collect and what's relevant and what's irrelevant, which is of course subject to refinement, but even when, let's use an, a, a classic example, when you're trying to say where the stars are located, you know, this, this star is at this particular altitude and this particular, you know, right ascension and declension, or, uh, um, and when you're pinpointing the location of a star, you're assuming that the starlight comes to you in a straight line. So there are theoretical presuppositions that go into even assigning coordinates to the locations of the stars. Um, and it's really difficult to untangle all the the theoretical underpinning of even what happens when you're doing supposedly raw data collection. Um, so um, th- there, there, there are theories that even go into the simplest data analysis. So you, you cannot divorce your experimental results from some kind of theoretical framework. You can try, but you're adopting some other theoretical framework. So I guess that's one thing I'd point out. Another thing, and this is something that John Warwick Montgomery pointed out, and I think is Suicide of Christian Theology. He does an essay uh, where he talks about the relationship between data in the sciences and data in history and data in theology, which I thought was a kind of insightful approach. Um, that in, in history, for example, um, the, pro- the approach in history is very similar to the approach in the objective or hard sciences. It's just what they take as data is different. So in science, you collect data in the laboratory. Um, in history, the data is primary source texts, right? And just as a just as a scientist says, it starts from the presupposition that at least in some cases, experimental results are reliable. So to the historian says, well, at least in some cases, human testimony is reliable, right? And then how you interpret that and how you fit it together, that's where you're doing a theoretical analysis. But, I mean, history basically operates under the presupposition that, at least in some cases, human testimony is reliable, and that's their data from which they work. I mean, you can argue whether a particular text is a reliable text, but the assumption is that in some cases they are. And along those lines, and Mike, feel free to jump in as much as you want, but I'm assuming since you could both teach this class, I'm hopefully asking questions that those who aren't teaching a class on apologetics might ask, but... um, When we talk about the the metaphysical, right, so the the non-empirical maybe isn't the best way to put it, but it's a way to put it. And for many years, the metaphysical wasn't divorced from the hard sciences as we might think of them today. Is that even a good term to keep using, hard sciences? You can use it. That's fine. I think we know what we're talking about. Um, But I think today most would see the metaphysical having no role or place in real science um, and therefore God or anything along those lines not having a place and maybe even having convictions of those things being not that someone privately can't have but um, if someone were to bring those things into the lab would um, be out of place and maybe even detrimental to to doing 
meaningful scientific inquiry, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know either of you can answer this because I've talked with both of you at least at, at some amount on it. Where would we see that major shift coming where, um, and I could be wrong, but physics it was considered part of the liberal arts historically. I mean, it mm-hmm. grows no, out of it. Yeah. Um, to where this kind of um, exodus takes place of of the, the sciences out of the humanities and out of the metaphysical realm at all to where for things to, to be truly scientific in the view of, I think in the popular view at least, um, those things are gone. I, I don't know if I'm asking this well, but how either of you would, I mean, is, it, is the answer just broadly modernity? I mean, you look at someone like a Francis Bacon in the New Atlantis and <clears throat> these things are clearly interrelated in his view and maybe he's just doing that because he doesn't want to get in trouble um but where does uh where does this kind of because that's still a presupposition that people have where where can we maybe trace this to sure maybe i'll I'll start and then you can fill in fill in the details um yeah i mean it's it is post enlightenment of course but there's a lot of politics going on and there's a lot of there's a power struggle i would say especially in england on the university campuses uh, the way i kind of for the low layman kind of describe describe it and and part of that is just i just don't know all the details but uh, you know theology was the queen of the sciences and philosophy was the handmaid to theo- theology and everything else and <clears throat> there's a hierarchy there even though there shouldn't have, it shouldn't have played out that way we're not saying theology is better than than chemistry with that, although... I, I frequently say that. Yeah, though. you do. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> not to uh, not to Henkel, though, because no. he could karate kick me right to my throat. Right. And give you disease, or he's a disease... Yeah, he could probably know, infect Sorry. me, too. Yeah. He would not do that. He's a very nice man. He is a very nice man. Um, but he, he could level yeah. me with one kick. So you can understand, you could understand the bitterness, the anger... Um, maybe those are too harsh words, of people in different uh, disciplines who feel that they are being held down by this ball and chain that is theology and philosophy. Um, and it's too broad of, a, broad of a way, but a very simplistic way. And so you're going to have more of a silo effect. You're going to even have an overtaking of that on the university campuses. Um, you're going to have colleges that don't talk to each other, um, disciplines that don't talk to each other. And there is going to be a thrust also in, the, in, in America, and you know this better than I do, uh, Carrie, from your history, especially at Cornell, is this is how you do truth. Kind of everything else is just sort of your fuzzy opinion that's kind of nice. Right, mm-hmm. it's an oversimplification of that. However, philosophically, um, you know, th- there's a little bit of Ludwig, early Wittgenstein here that if you, you know, if, if something is not a mathematical proof or can be verified and theoretically falsified, kind of thing, then we can't speak of that. It's not truth. Little and side note: Do you know who Wittgenstein went to elementary school with? Who? Hitler. Really? I'm not making that up. They just took different life paths. I'm 100% serious, who's, but go ahead. Who's more... Da- well, we go that. <laughs> um, now, I think Wittgenstein comes back, but, but notice that I can't... Th- there is this idea that in order to be, for something to be truth, it needs to be empirically verified. 
very simplistic. Let's let's keep it at lowest common denominator there. But the statement that you can only find truth by verifying something empirically cannot be verified empirically. Right. It's a philosophical That's thing. It. And so we are pulling ourselves out of that a little bit, but you still have the silo effect where uh, there are certain people who maybe in the biology department or whatever, never got the memo. Not <laughs> right? here. Not here. Right. But never got the memo. Now with that, I think Carrie, what, what has been very helpful for, from you to me is describing how that's not even the case, how we do science. And, and, and maybe this is just something that just kind of out there and, and a thoughtful scientist is, rolls their eyes at that. Like you don't verify, you don't have these verification principles in every single thing. There are, here's the data. This theory makes sense with the data with what we have. Mm -hmm. It's not like every single point uh, you know, you can see under a microscope, I think you can use the subatomic particles or whatever, anything like that. So anyway, that was very helpful for a non-scientific person that you were able to point that out to me. So why don't you yeah, yeah, I, go well, ahead I, I like, fill in my gaps? Yeah, I mean, you, you pointed to the the idea. Sometimes you'll hear it phrased nowadays, if, if, you, didn't, if you can't measure it, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Sort of this idea that the only things that we can rely upon are the things that you can empirically verify in the laboratory. And I liked that you pointed out that, I mean, that, that worldview is just self-contradictory. Yeah. Like you can't consistently hold that worldview because even like you said, the statement that, you know, everything must be empirically verified cannot itself be empirically verified. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so it's, it's a self-refuting theory and, you know, you, you can come up. I always, I like to use this example that, um, you know, People act based on goals. Okay, that's a that's a statement. I believe that's true. And in order to argue against me, you would need to have the goal to argue against mm -hmm. me. So there's, it's not like you can go into the lab and decide whether or not people act based on goals. There's no measurement you can do to, to measure your goals. And yet we all know we have goals. We all know we act on those goals. That's a truth, but it's not an empirically verifiable truth, right? So... I, I think people that are thoughtful recognize this, but there's still this sort of sloganeering in science mm -hmm. that's very common, and not necessarily from the scientists themselves who are doing the work, but by the time it gets to, you know, the American Journal of Science or the New York Times or whatever, there's sort of these slogans about empiricism and so on that, get, that really get emphasized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I've found personally that scientists tend to be a little more careful and um, nuanced in their view. Yeah, and, well, and, and to be fair, when in asking that, um, that's largely what I have in mind is the popular take on these things mm -hmm, because right. you'll hear the average um, layman, scientific layman, not theological layman, yeah. speak, and a lot of times you'll hear, "Well, it's science," right, thrown out <laughs> in a way that their take is precisely what. Right. What's I mean, that's described. like that's like Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, those people right. like that. It's like they're you know, mm -hmm. philosophy is you know basically bunch of rubbish and right. I mean that's I guess his philosophy right, right. <laughs> so. and I think you know it well it I think of even in the historical field which is my primary field um, you know I did intellectual history and that's great but you look at cultural or social history and you say how did the ideas trickle down mm -hmm. and I, I would say if you were to survey the average American how those ideas have trickled down is unfortunately probably Neil deGrasse Tyson Bill Nye right. Richard Dawkins right that type of take. And, and I think this is, this is true of every field. So you go to Barnes and Noble, 
there's probably one book in the theology spirituality department where we would go, okay, that's maybe sort of worth the paper that it was printed on. And, and this is going to be true, I'm guessing, for the person who's an expert in science, the person who's an expert in, in whatever. You know, what is out there uh, that comes through the media is a watered-down version. It's, you know, to put it in modern terms, clickbait. But it, 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 it almost has to be because others mm -hmm. weren't able to understand it. But I get frustrated when, when a media person says something. And it's not even that they're on my side or not on my side. It's just like, man, if you had any clue, you wouldn't have said it that way. Mm -hmm. And I have to imagine that the biologists and the physicists and the chemic chemist, when they read something, even in like the New York Times or something like that, they kind of roll their eyes. Right. Right. And so it's, it's just good for us Christians to realize, just stay, take a step back. It's not science versus theology as much as we think. Well, in, in connection with this, part of the reason I was asking before is I'm guessing in these, um, we call it course seminar. I don't, um, the course we're teaching. Yeah. yeah. I'm guessing most of what you're training people to do, especially people who are serving as teachers or campus pastors, or just people who want to better serve their neighbor in their daily life in conversations, that that is precisely the type of questions that most of them are getting from people, someone who has just enough knowledge to be dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that the objections that they're dealing with are, are usually probably not... Um, and I, I don't want to keep throwing out Dawkins, but my, I, I use him as an example because he's a trained biologist, right? I mean, mm -hmm. um, they're, they're, there's not a lot of Richard Dawkins, unless I'm mistaken. There's not a lot of people, you know, active academics in science who are waging, are writing popular literature opposed to metaphysical convictions or, or um, to theism. Um, what they're, I think the, the average objection you're going to get from people, um, the average person who is struggling with Christianity is going to be kind of these filtered down views of, of what they received. What, um, and by just let me interrupt real quick. Sure. And I think we try, at least we tried, uh, to, um, say to our students, we don't want to send you out half cocked with just a little bit of danger. We, right. we mm -hmm. with a little bit of information to make you uh, dangerous. We want to say to them, there's no home runs here. These are not arguments where you drop the mic. That's not how faith works. And quite frankly, if you go up, you're going to find, I mean, a five-minute YouTube tape from an athe a clip from an atheist that will, you know, totally make you feel like a whatever. It's just about being thoughtful. Mm -hmm. right? That's kind of a, a Joe Biden moment where we talked about records and you said YouTube tape. Yeah, yeah I did. <laughs> I was watching this YouTube tape. Um can I, can I add to that too? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah so absolutely. I, I think that's that's a really good point that you're making, Mike, that part of what we, we like to keep the class kind of small, you know, 16, 18 people, so that we can have these a little bit more in-depth debates and it's not just sort of lecturing on these are the talking points you can make in order to win an argument, but getting people to feel comfortable having these kinds of conversations. And that's what a lot of apologetics, I think, is, is being willing to engage people in a serious way, you know, and not being afraid to, to talk, you know, people have legitimate concerns about Christianity. It's not like they're just dumb people or something, right? Obviously right. they have legitimate concerns. Some are personal reasons, but some are actually legitimate philosophical or moral reasons. And we should, as Christians, be willing to engage that and, and have an intelligent conversation. And you're not necessarily gonna, you know, come up with an argument and have the person say, oh, yep, fine, I'm a Christian now. Maybe you will, great. 
but you might not, but it's about longer term engagement. It's kind of playing the long game. Yeah. And maybe in a second, I'll take you guys back to your background, but, um, to that to that point, one of the things I I think is interesting too is along those lines, and this is not philosophical objections, but there are people who do have moral objective objections to Christianity. There are legitimate moral objections if they don't understand correctly what's going on. I, I mean, I think famously of Saint Augustine, um, Augustine, who uh, wrestled with the Old Testament. Right? God seems angry in the Old Testament. There is things that the Israelites are commanded to do that seem wrong. And something Mike and I have talked about before is, well, God's dealing with people in the ancient Near East. He can only deal with what he's, what he's working with. Um, I think there's moral objections to things that the church has done throughout history. Rod Rosenblatt has that great essay on, um, what is it, Theology for Those Broken by the Church. I think that's the title. I could be wrong. Um, but I think that's a, a very important point you bring up is, People are oftentimes coming from a position that's not intellectually vapid. It's not without substance. Um, and that at the same time is personally loaded, right? Um, their take is also colored by their experiences um, in life. And uh, what, um, I'll ask two questions. And then at the end, I, I would like you both to talk about kind of Strasbourg and your approach to apologetics based on your influence there, but what would you say as far as two things um, for A, in dealing with neighbor, for navigating these discussions, knowing that the discussion is seldom simply intellectual for someone, right? That there's probably a, a lot, um, whether it be a lot emotionally, there might be, I mean, this is someone's life narrative. You're not simply asking them to change their view on one thing. Um, and then secondly, what's the end goal of the apologetic task? Sure. You want me to take the first one? Uh, okay. Or do you want to take the first I, one? Go well, ahead. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I think that it's really important to actually listen, spend a lot of time listening to what their actual concerns are and don't sort of, you know, assume that because somebody is not a Christian, they must be, you know, cheating on their wife or something like that, you know, and that attributes some kind of moral flaw to them that they don't have. Actually listen to what their concerns are and then try to address those concerns as best as you can. And if you can't say, that's a, you know, that's an excellent point. I don't have an answer to that. That's something that I'm struggling with as well, you know, that kind of thing. So I think um, it just listening carefully to what people's actual concerns are is that is the best place to start. Yeah. I think you, you said repeatedly during the class that you should be asking more questions than you answer. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and these are just, they're relationships, and we talk about this with evangelism, too. You can have all the evangelism programs you want, but it's finally about relationships. Um, you know, I always, not always, but when I speak about apologetics to pastors, I will use this line, like, the last thing the church needs is another amateur psychologist, but pastors are often put into that position. And is there atheism come from anger towards God? Um <clears throat> Is it just self-righteous behavior? I want to be smarter than you. And to anger towards yeah. God, I mean, even that, read the Psalms, right? That That is not an inhuman response to life in a fallen world. Yeah. You know. and, and I think that there is this impression that atheism always comes from a very cold-hearted intellectual uh, position. 
But I think with Christianity for, let's say, at least a few generations has been very much about feelings, very much about a prosperity sort of gospel, like this is going to make you better. We don't sing the imprecatory psalms anymore. We don't we don't think about the theology of the cross. I mean, we, we didn't really get that for a couple generations. Um, that those people who are acutely aware of suffering, either in their world or in their life, that the church seems kind of silly and, quite frankly, childish. And I think we're, we're reaping what we, what we had planted for, I don't know, the 20th century. But I'm quite hopeful because this generation that we teach right now is acutely aware of suffering and they are have to come to terms with this Christianity have something to say with suffering does it have a, does it have something more is it, is it more robust than the kind of Christianity of the um, you know the big box church right? right and I think apologetics plays a role it's not the only thing, but it does play a role. And that's why I believe that we do, in Lutheran circles anyway, are seeing an uptick in interest in apologetics. And I'll throw it to Carrie, but one, one thing I've been thinking about, and it would be an interesting episode, is with um, kind of the college student age and a little bit younger, um, and this is just because I have kids and one who refers to himself as the meme lord. Um, <laughs> if you look at memes and the memes that, that people are sharing, I think there is a recognition in this age group of they've been sold a bill of goods on a mm -hmm. lot of things mm -hmm. from every side of various issues. And so um, I don't know that they always know what the answer is or where to go, but I think there's a healthy skepticism and openness there um, to the past and to um, uh, non simply a non-standard or mainstream answers to things which I definitely postmodern in a good way yeah uh, in, in in the best way by the way we I, I don't know if carrie we had this conversation or not but we may um start teaching courses using memes only in the theology department <laughs> like everything's just memes yeah. <laughs> but i guess carrie if you have anything to the first or yeah. then you guys can jump to the to the second um but I guess if you have anything more to the first of how did you you mentioned listening and um, but if you guys want you can jump to the second two of what is the what is the end goal of apologetics? Uh, well, I would say the I'll jump to the second one. You know the the goal is to present the gospel and that's um, it's not simply to try to convince someone that a six day creation is correct. Um, it's to present the gospel in hopes that some would be saved. Um, but I think that's, it's also important to realize that just it's who we are as Christians. Like we, as Christians, we want to think about and study and learn about God and what he has done in our world, whether it's in history or in, um, in science or, you know, in language or anything like that. So it's part of just who we are as Christians and we can't, or really we can't help but doing it. You know, it's um, just like, it's in our nature as Christians to want to, you know, help someone who's in trouble. That's, that's part of our, the fruit of faith. And we want to, if someone is in error, to help them, to explain, this is my understanding. Um, and so it's almost like a, just a natural thing that, that I think that if we think about what it means to be a Christian, 
is something that all Christians should be doing. And just as a human being, that is, is something different than the table or the rock. Like we want to explore, we want to know, we want to have these intellectual conversations. We, th- it's enjoyable to do this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, it, and there is a hum- an aspect of human flourishing there that we are thinking about such things. Um, and, we can be, and we are gifted that in a, uh, a society where uh, we can have colleges and we can read books and we do have libraries. And I think it's, it's not just our duty to do that, um, but it is our great desire and our delight to do that. And, and I use J.P. Moreland's phrase all the time that apologetics is a ministry of caring. I care about the skeptic and her doubts. I care about the people in my pews and their doubts. I care about the future doubts of my my children. And so I do want to set them up for being a thoughtful person um, instead of just saying, well, this is what the media said. This is what my friend said. This is what, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson said or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, um, that they are actually pretty thoughtful about it. And so let's get, we got, we got a few minutes left. It's, well, it's and a, that's where I want to go ahead. Um, my last question, and then maybe you guys can talk more about the course is, um, I know for both of you, apologetics isn't the end of it. And I would guess both of you wouldn't divorce apologetics from evangelism. Um, that these go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't having, say it a subset of evangelism. Right. So having studied in Strasbourg, and um, I think both of you having been influenced by Dr. Montgomery, um, I've heard Carrie say now, and um, I've heard you mention many times, Mike, and I know I've even, when presenting, brought up, and maybe to make sure so people understand it correctly and then why you think this, um, a lot of people think apologetics, and I think especially parish pastors um, still thinking through the lens of the battle of the Bible in the 70s, think apologetics and they think creation evolution or six-day creation. And I know from my own reading and experience with Montgomery, but then also with you guys um, having studied at Strasbourg and how you approach things, I don't think either of you approaches apologetics with that as the primary focus and certainly not as the starting point. And so to be clear, it's not because either of you are think um, questions of creation or evolution are inconsequential or that um, Genesis 1 through 3 has no purpose beyond presenting some mythos that explains the human being. Um, but what would you say to those, I think even a lot of our... Um, our friends who are working with youth who are maybe high school or college age think the primary challenge to their faith is going to come when they go to college, they take a science course, and they hear about evolution and there's this antagonism, antagonism through to the creation account. Um, why, why do you not see that as the starting point or the primary place for apologetic uh, back and forth to take place? Where do you prefer to go instead, and, and why do you think that that is the route to take? Yeah, so I'll I'll start with that. I mean, I'll I'll use a a simplistic answer to start with is that there are, you know, in in the Bible Satan believes in creation, right? And yet he's not saved, right? So you can have people who are different you can have people who are non-Christians believe in some kind of creation event. So simply having someone be cognizant of a 6-day creation or however long it took, you know, if someone comes from some other mythology of creation, they could believe in a creation um, and still not be a Christian. So 
I think that the, what you want to do is you want to get somebody to the gospel as quickly as possible, present the gospel, and then apologetics is about defending that. Then, you know, maybe someone, you'll present the gospel, Christ died for your sins, um, and they will say, great, I want to be a Christian. And then, you know, that's great. But maybe they'll say, yeah, but I don't believe that Christianity stuff because of, you know, science has disproved creation or, you know, a bunch of your example, drunk monks wrote the, you know, the gospels in you know, the seventh century or something. So then you can start addressing those individual concerns, but you don't want to start out by saying, doubtless you have some problem with six day creation. So let me start there. I mean, you need to listen to what their actual concerns are. Yeah. And I, I'll use this example with parish pastors because it is a concern um, that we're not, you know, hammering home certain, let's just say typical conservative Christian uh, issues of the 20th century um, is to say, if someone came up to me and said, I will, I will not listen to your story about sin and grace with Jesus Christ, because I can't believe in what you're talking about, because you believe that Christ's body and blood is actually present in this, uh, this thing called Holy Communion, and that's voodoo, and I don't want to talk to you about it. Would I plant my flag there and say, I am going to convince you that this is real because God said so. And, uh, maybe even try to talk about like quantum something or whatever, like just, it's possible, you know, whatever, and go down this long convoluted argument. Or would I say, you know what? There's a lot of Christians that are like, you know, that's, we do disagree about it. That's not the main point. I'm talking about your sin and, uh, your savior. Right. And yet somehow we would do that with creation. Right where I believe that that's an act of that's that's going to be an article of faith for me. I think you can get to a creation that there was a beginning and all this kind of stuff. Um, but six day, twenty four hours. That's that's later in the conversation. That's later in the conversation, and so I don't want to get into an argument where I mean, even if you want to take it at a very militaristic, tactical way. Um, which I don't think is helpful. You're just trying to have conversations. You're not trying to win an argument. But even if you were, the tactic says go on to the, the field of battle where you have an advantage, <laughs> right? And that would be the resurrection or that would be the moral argument for the existence of God with some tweaks and stuff like that. Uh, you know, don't, don't get lost in that. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't make sense to me. And it, it's, you can still get to a designer or creator. You can still get to sin. You can still get to grace and you can have to, you, there's some things you're just going to have to leave for catechesis. Right. right. And the, I mean, eventually if you will need to deal with creation, mm -hmm. like eventually yeah. you will need yeah. to. And, and also predestination, but it's not, you know, it's not job one. <laughs> so I think we're both on the same page there. Uh, so back to the kind of the story, just to sort of wrap up, and then if it's okay, I'll, I'll give a little preview. No, I'm there. done. So yeah. yeah, you guys talk your course. Whatever so you, do. you know, when I came here to WLC, we quickly put the connection of the Partons together in Strasbourg, where I had studied, and where you're going to speak this coming. Yeah, this coming. So I actually haven't summer. studied there, but yeah, I'm yeah. going to be teaching there in July. But yep. your, these dinner parties were Strasbourg. Basically Strasbourg, Santa yeah. Barbara. Yeah. So we were, we made that connection and really, I mean, within a couple months we said we should do something, mm -hmm. right? And so we wanted, we wanted to do uh, Strasbourg in Milwaukee, <laughs> 
knowing full well that we're not Montgomery and Parton and Milwaukee is not Strasburg. <laughs> However, it is a very fine summer city. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so if, if you have the means and the opportunity to go to the International Academy of Apologetics, Human Rights and Evangelism in Strasbourg, France every July, by all means, go and do that. It's a fantastic experience. But if you have been there uh, already and want something a little bit different or you know somebody that maybe can't afford to do that, um, Milwaukee is a good second choice. Mm-hmm. And, and quite frankly, uh, not to step out of line here, but that's not, uh, that uh, academy is not going to be going on forever. And we felt like maybe, maybe, maybe humbly that this could be a landing place at least for a few of those students who are pastors, teachers, interested laymen uh, and women, uh, a landing place for them to get uh, some some apologetics. Mm-hmm. So we had kind of interesting that we, we connected right away on that. And um, I'll give you the final word, but let me just give you the details of what we're doing. So um, one week, June 15th to June 19th, where we're going to have our practical apologetics course. So that's uh, uh, Carrie and I will go through Kind of the basics, not not too in depth, but I think in depth enough that it'll be worth your two hundred dollars. That's what we're mm-hmm. we're charging, and then we're going to bring in Pastor Luke Thompson from St. Paul's in Ottawa, Ontario, and he's going to speak. His title of his um, um, class is "Into the Postmodern Wilderness," and he is kind of basing this off of E. F. Schumacher's book. What was the title? I forget the title. We read it to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm that's all right. Um, but think of philosophical maps and he's going to walk us through, uh, a certain, uh, uh, kind of way to navigate this kind guide of philosophy for the, guide for the perplexed right? guide for the perplexed. Yes. And, and in fact, I may just read a part of his, um, his little ad. And uh, I think that would actually be helpful. Join Pastor Thompson as we learn how to not only draft philosophical maps, but also how to defend and promote some of the most important yet overlooked features and landmarks for life today. We'll especially explore the problem of evil, Ecclesiastes, and life being meaningless apart from God, and assessments of subjectivism and philosophical materialism. By the end, you'll not only be able to orient yourself in the wilderness of postmodernity, but be able to guide others with sound philosophical apologetics through the wilderness. Now, that sounds all fancy and stuff, but Luke will make it very, uh, he will make it accessible. He is very fun to listen to, and I cannot wait. Yeah, it's going to be very, very good, and there's uh, more information on there. That is the week after that. That's June 22nd to 26th. You can do either one. You can do both. Both are $200 each. We do have housing here on the campus. It's a little Spartan, but it's cheap if you are trying to make it. It was voted best res hall in the state, wasn't it? Is that right? I believe it. I'm sure, but it is it's it is not the Hilton, though. Well, it's not Spartan. like they. It's Spartan le- in the sense that you need to bring your own towels and stuff. I thought we have jacuzzis in our <laughs> dorm rooms here, don't we? Um, anyway. It's very nice. You just got to bring your own nice. towels. They're very <laughs> nice, but it's... But otherwise, it's, you're, it's not like... There's not an, an... There's running water. There's, there's mostly and, running water. Okay. All right. So... Um, we don't have the information on our website just yet, but at the turn of the calendar year, you should be able to go to our websites. Uh, just go to uh, wlc.edu slash apologetics. That will take you to a landing play, place, which will eventually get to our own 
um, apologetics and that will give you all the information about the two classes now with that said we are struggling for a name hmm. And Okari came up yeah, with a pretty you're good... Supposed, I didn't know you were going to bring that up, because yeah. now we're going to get all kinds of suggestions. That's what do we want. Yeah, but what if... Okay. Then you alienate people if you don't, I know. Pick, their, That's if we okay. don't pick their name. It'll be fine. <laughs> so uh, Melanchthon, who is... You have studied uh, Melanchthon and Wittenberg and how they talked about science mm-hmm. and very interesting stuff. And Melanchthon uh, means black earth. And uh, his interaction with sciences and the liberal arts and theology we decided maybe a possibility would be black earth apologetics now wade poo-pooed on that because there's a book on the holocaust you don't have to bring up the bad part (laughs) so then we decided carrie carrie and i or mostly carrie said how about berg king so bk apologetics but that sounded like Burger King. Burger King too much. And because your name is Berg, so it'd be Burger King Apologetics. And we just, my wife pointed this yes. out. She said, yes. oh, yeah, Burger King Apologetics. So then we started to think about <laughs> Berg is Mountain and Keen is. Bold or Brave. Bold or, or Brave. So then we're going to like Bold Mountain. And then we're, we're really close to like the knockoff Mountain Dew can there. <laughs> so if you do have a suggestion, we need it like pronto, like in the next, like when this comes out. Like you have one day. To Basically, email we need us. to choose a name so we can <laughs> register the domain name. Right now, <laughs> right now it's it's a BK Apologetics. Watch, someone's gonna probably squat on both those domain yeah, names right. now. Oh, jeez. <laughs> one second, I gotta get in my computer. <laughs> so if you don't do, go to GoDaddy, if you, and register if you have some, name. yeah, if you have some like brilliant, some brilliant name, we're all ears. Yep. So I carry. I'll give you the final. Why, why should why should a person come to? BK Black Earth Apologetics <laughs> well, we, we did it last year and it was I think I mean we had a lot of fun and I think the the students that came like you said a wide variety of students that you know just just the different backgrounds the students had made it a lot of fun discussion and uh, you know it, it's a good way to connect thinking and philosophy and science to uh, to your faith um, and the idea is to to provide an opportunity for people to deepen their understanding of scripture and its relationship to various disciplines. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. And I'm really looking forward to doing this, uh, this coming summer and hopefully for many years to come. Yep. Well, thank you very much. Um, Wade, you want to close this out? Yeah, sure. No, I appreciate what both you guys are able to bring today. And I think it's important topics and you're both qualified in a way that I'm not. So I appreciate you entertaining my probably naive or not the most informed questions. Um, <clears throat> end of the day, uh, we remember that apologetics, uh, even as a subset of uh, evangelism, is all about uh, the Spirit doing His work, whether that be removing obstacles or bringing people to faith. So uh, we hope you got something out of it, and maybe you'll be interested in the seminar. And no matter what, all you can do is let the bird fly. Let the bird fly. Oh, shoot, our <laughs> guest is supposed to say that. <laughs> Every evening when the sun goes down, get up my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I say I'm up, another round. I say I'm up, another round. I say I'm up, another round. One more round won't get me down.
don't care what people are thinking. I'm not drunk.